Welcome to the First Church Message of the Week podcast. Thanks for listening in. In this vision of a great multitude, we are invited to capture a glimpse of what the true church can look like. What makes up a faithful community that is called the great multitude? And what does this have to say about our church here today? Through gifts of community and diversity, we are called to be on a journey that grows more Christ-like every day. In our message of the week, we continue our Revelation sermon series featuring a message from Pastor Jen Tyler about John's vision of the church found in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. Here is the First Church message of the week. Don't you pray with me. Gracious God, as we continue in this time of worship and listen for your word, we ask that you would open our ears that we might hear you more clearly, our eyes that we might see you more clearly, and our hearts that we might love you more deeply as you rid us from any and all distractions so that all that we see and hear and know and feel and speak are of you. Amen. So today we are continuing with our sermon series, The End of the Bible as We Know It, a study on the book of Revelation. Today, together, we have been talking a little over the last few weeks about what the a gift this mysterious book is as we read along and look for what I believe it offers to us as messages of hope. Hope, like the assurance we've talked about these last couple of weeks about how God promises us that whatever has been or is or will be, God is always with us. And God is also always inviting us to live lives that honor God, that are lives of worship, not just on d- days or times when we gather in this space, but all of the time. And so today we're going to continue building on those invitations as we read together in Revelation, this time looking for, as the sermon title printed in your bulletin suggests, how this hope translates not just in our individual lives, but in our communal ones as well. And so I want to invite you to look for that as I read today's passage for us. But before I read it, I want to unpack it a little and give us a little context. Because today we're going to read from Revelation chapter 7. But it's worth noting that chapters 6 all the way through chapter 20 are a little different than some of what we're going to hear in chapter 7. By that I mean most of the text in these chapters 6 through 20 describe in great detail what is called a battle of heaven and earth and what they call the pit below. I'm sure that doesn't sound really hopeful to a lot of us when we hear that description. There is some scary stuff that's and some mysterious stuff that is found and a bit intimidating. And much of what we think of probably when we talk about the book of Revelation is found in some of these chapters. Chapter 6, the passage right before the one we're going to read today, is focusing on the opening of what is known as the seven seals. Now, when we talk about the seven seals in Revelation, that also sounds like some, to me at least, some mysterious or scary or weird thing. Um, They are not talking about seven animals, seals, although you're welcome because now you're thinking about the sound they make, right? Since I said that, 
What they mean by seven seals is literally like the kind of seal that we use to secure a book or a letter. Um, in this case, it is a seal that seals a scroll. And so in the seal of the scroll, in chapter six, these seals are broken. So they are open, but the fullness of what is written in the scrolls is not yet revealed to us. But it just tells us a little bit about what happens when each of these seals are opened. So for example, in the first two verses of chapter six, it says, Then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard of the four living creatures call out, one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. That's some pretty dense language, isn't it? This chapter is full of some of this coded and symbolic language, such as the white horse there, that symbolizes a conquering power. Now, as we read on in chapter six, lots of different colors of horses come forth, and each of those colored horses represents something different. The white horse, of course, is this conquering power. Or the other phrase that we see in that verse that happen, that's going to also be said in the reading we have today, throughout Revelation, they refer to the four living creatures. Now, what are the four living creatures? Four and the living creatures and all, I could, go, I could go on and on about the symbolism of how we pull that meaning. But the short version is four living creatures is not four actual creatures. It is language we use to, in Revelation to represent all of the people and animals of the world, all of them. So as we read Revelation, anytime you see the phrase four living creatures, we mean all the people and the animals and all of creation. Now, as, sex, as chapter six goes on, there are more images like these that we don't fully have time to dive into today, but it's worth naming because I think they set the scene for what is yet to come. They name things like the different colored horses that I have already named, or they name those scary things that we can't quite dive into today either, such as those things we think of with Revelation, death and plagues and battles natural disaster and famine. A lot of these things that are scary, I think, to think about. Perhaps even more so because many of us here have experienced some of these in our own life or we have seen them happening in the news in other places and we wonder, oh my gosh, is this what Revelation is referring to? I mean, even here in our extended community in the last couple of weeks, we had an uncommon and scary and destructive storm that turned the sky from daylight to darkness in about a minute if anyone happened to be looking outside, even if we should have been in our basements, right? But those tornadoes, they swept in and they destroyed property and nature and communities, even took some lives. This is scary, scary stuff that they're talking about. And it isn't easy for us to understand. And I know that I cannot be the only one who's ever, wonder why, ever wondered why some of this stuff is in the Bible and what the meaning behind all of it is. Or maybe you're wondering something else too, like what I could have possibly been thinking when I said this book that has death and destruction and famine and war is such a book of hope, right? But there is all this language here about all of these things. And it reminds me that 
Sometimes our lives are hard too and filled with hard things too. But just like we're going to point to here in a moment, is anything ever really awful? Even in the midst of destruction, I think of the storms we've had in the last couple weeks. And when that storm came through, I was in Brookings where it was pretty bad. And the house I was on, they had fairly minor damage. Uh, They need a new roof, but in the scheme of things, that's not bad, right? But by the time we came outside after the storm, Three of our immediate neighbors had trees on their houses. And by the time we stepped outside, which was pretty quick, by the way, because we all wanted to see what came, right? And by the time we got out there, we had neighbors outside with their chainsaws cutting down each other's trees. I didn't even have time to soak in what had just happened, and people are already helping each other. Even in the midst of destruction, we find hope in how we care for one another in community. That's how it is in scripture too. We know that our God, our God who is good and worthy and faithful and true, teaches us even early in scripture, in the early chapters of Genesis, that we have the opportunity to bring good out of difficult circumstances. We know that because we have the gift of what we call free will when we get to choose what our actions are, whether that means that we are going to choose to honor God and one another, or we are going to turn away from each other and make poor choices like that in Genesis 3 of eating the forbidden fruit. We, just like Adam and Eve, get to make choices each and every day. And maybe our choices are not as dramatic or world-shifting or obvious as that one, But in large and small ways, they can make a difference in our lives and the lives of those around us, can't they? They can make a difference as we turn toward God and our neighbors or when we turn away and miss the opportunity to love God and our neighbors. Every day we have choices like this that are our own, invitations to be mindful of all that is around us. And in the same way, something similar is happening in this passage in Revelation. Because in the midst of all of this destruction and all these scary things in describing the seven seals, in chapter 6, we are told in verse 1 that we already read that there are seven seals. And then chapter 6 goes on to describe six of them. And then we read chapter 7 and we don't get to the seventh one until chapter 8. Now, why is that important? I would argue that that interlude is important because just like in our lives, when we have hard things that uh, bring forth good in the midst of them, that's what happens here too. Because in chapter seven, we find words of hope that are not about destruction or chaos that we've been hearing about. But instead, these words are about the faithfulness of people. It is words like these in the midst of all the other imagery that we read or maybe struggle to understand that give me hope. And I hope that you too hear the hopefulness as I read some of these words for us from chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 9 and read through verse 17. It says to thus, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, 
with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God singing, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are the ones who, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water of life, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here ends our reading today. Perhaps a little bit similar to the focus we talked about last week in chapter 5 of how Christ is on the throne and in the center. Here, these verses once again have a reminder that this throne should be the center of all of our lives, that Jesus should be the center of all of our lives, all of the time. And when it is, it tells us, when we are worshiping God day and night, as it instructed us to do in verse 15, it is then that we are assured that we will no longer hunger or thirst. But as it says, we will be cared for and peace-filled as God promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That doesn't mean, mind you, that there will be no more tears. It means that when our tears come, God will be there to wipe them away and comfort you. Now that sounds like a pretty hope-filled future, doesn't it? Or a hope-filled present, if you will. It sounds a lot better than some of that war or destruction. And personally, my favorite part of this hopeful and encouraging image that I long for each of us to live into is how they got there. Because no one gets there alone. Instead, it tells us in verse 9 that we started with that they got there together in community. In verse 9, it tells us that this image of community is a gathering for what seems to be the most amazing worship service of all worship services, wherein they get to be present in the physical presence of God on the throne. And it is there that there seem to be three main characteristics here that tell us a bit more about who this community is and why it's so important to be named there. And so 
The first of these, as it says in verse 9, I think we have verse 9 we can throw on the screen. It names that there is this great multitude that no one could count. I love thinking about how high it would have to be for no one to be able to count that. And then it tells us that they are from every nation, from all tribes and all people and all languages. And I don't know about you, but I love picturing this scene and hope you picture it like I do with more diversity than we can even begin to imagine. Literally, it tells us there are people from every nation around the world speaking every language of the globe, including those that we've never even heard of. There are people of every kind of diversity that we can imagine, and then some, because some of our diversity and how we talk about it, we've created ourselves, haven't we? But in God's eyes, this diversity is not a label we put on people, but a gift in how we interact with each other. There are people of every kind represented, it says, whether that is racial or ethnic or gender or age, or ability, or sexuality, or socioeconomic status, or background, or you see how the list could go on and on and on? When God tells us all are welcome, we are reminded here with the great multitude that you are not only welcome, but you are represented in this multitude and if you're, you personally being represented here weren't powerful enough, I love that it goes on to tell us that your representation isn't everything. But rather, the details tell us that they stand before the throne of God and they are all equal. Now, when I say equal, I don't mean they lack diversity or that anyone's asked to assimilate, to fit in. But rather, we are assured that all who gather are welcomed just as you are. And part of how we know this is because they're all dressed the same and they're all robed in white. Now the white and the robe, these have their own levels of symbolism we can get into. But at the heart of that, I love that the whole of the multitude is dressed the same because, well, it kind of takes away some of the judgments that we have, doesn't it? I mean, you know how we talk about or say things like, you can't take your wealth with you? In some ways, this is a reminder of that. Because with the multitude standing in all of our diversity before God, we don't have some who are going to be looking all fancy in their high-end linens and royal jewels with others on the other side in their uh, rags or their strips of cloth, right? We don't have any of that. Instead, we are all equal in white robes reminding us of our equity before God and how we are all in this together. So much so that those gathered are even holding on to the same thing, right? Now, what do they hold? It tells us that they are holding palm branches in their hand. And to be honest, palm branches surprises me every time I read this. Uh, palm branches are not as fancy as I would think of. I mean, I would have imagined that there was some at least high, holy, secret meaning to palm branches. But instead, it truly is a reference to probably the first thing you think of when you think of palm branches. What do you think of when you think of palm branches? Palm Sunday, right? So Palm Sunday is exactly what this references. 
just as we wave palm branches on the Sunday before Easter as a representation of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem for the last time, so too is this community represented here doing the same. And specifically, they're waving these branches as a way of honoring and praising God. It's just as simple as complicate, and complicated as that. I also think it's beautiful because there's joy in the solidarity of worshiping together in the same way, isn't there? I mean, I've certainly experienced that joy as we worship together week after week, or especially on those favorite days that we know and love. As a pastor, one of my favorite days is Palm Sunday, partly because the holy week of Easter is its own thing to behold, right? But also, I admittedly really love that even here in South Dakota, where we love to sit in our pews and to never move or even sway with the music if we don't have to, we walk in on Palm Sunday and hand you that branch and everything changes and suddenly even the adults can't help but to fidget and wave your branches. And it's beautiful to behold the ways that we then find ourselves not even on purpose Worshiping God, not just with our presence and our prayers and our voices, those are good, but also with our bodies. And as we picture this scene unfolding as it's written in Revelation, I imagine it being much the same. I imagine our places in that crowd, and I wonder... If anyone else here was like me, tempted to hear and to read of this vision and to think that maybe this one, like some of the others, are meant for the future, about what the faithful are going to look like and do at the end of time. Because it's tempting for me to do that, just like perhaps you, but as we talk about our own memories of what it is to say away of those palm branches, we realize that we've lived glimpses of all of these, haven't we? We've waved palms and sung praises and cared for our neighbors and honored our diversity and our equity, and we have sought to care for our neighbors in ways that maybe we don't even realize. And it suggests to me that if we have done all of these things, at least in part, then maybe this isn't just a vision for the future, but an invitation for the present. Because as incredible as all of this sounds as something to look forward to, wouldn't our community be better off if we did all that we could to live into that reality here today? I wonder what God might be wanting us to do to help that come to be. I wonder how God might be inviting you to see your neighbors as God sees them, to bring the wholeness of the multitude who love God and worship with our beings into reality. What might God be wanting you to do? Maybe, maybe it's been on your heart to do something like invite a friend or maybe it's been on your heart to share your gifts, either here in the church or beyond in the community, to step up into that role that God's kind of been nudging you for, but none of us really like to say yes to more commitments when we're already so busy. Maybe it's in small ways or behind the scene ways, like when you're going to help your neighbor know that they are authentically loved for who they are without categories or exceptions. Each 
of these steps not only helps us individually live more Christ-like lives, but when we do it together, it also helps our community reflect a more Christ-like church too. A church that cares for one another, that works to prevent hunger, that gives shelter from the scorching heat or the relentless winter that won't give up, that shows our tender side as we wipe away tears from one another's eyes. These, friends, are the mark of the true church, and they are the bold invitation that Revelation invites us to live into, not just today, but every day. And so in this crazy chaotic world that we live in, when we are surrounded by chaos or storms or words of violence and war and heartache, just like those described in chapters six and eight, might we heed this invitation from chapter seven, remembering that in the midst of the chaos, we are invited to pause and to be still and to center on the one who matters most. To know that no matter what is going on around us, it is a good time to worship God and to love our neighbor. Friends, with this invitation before us, I hope that we will do so in faithful community as we seek to honor one another and to see one another in the ways that God has first seen and celebrated us. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, we give thanks that you love us, that you welcome us, and that you pour your grace upon each and every one of us. We ask God that this day, this week, this lifetime to come, that you will help us to honor you by seeing all of your creation around us as the ways you see them as holy and beloved. God, may we honor you this and every day. In the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the First Church Message of the Week. To stay connected, subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook. For more information on our church calendar, visit our website at watertownfirst.church. This has been the First Church Message of the Week.